Uh, I'm um, trying to think of um, the excuse for why I'm going to show you this video clip, and I can't think of the excuse, um, but I love it. Uh, it's, um, it's from this movie called Live and Become. Um, the, um, the premise, the background of the movie is that uh, in uh, Ethiopia there is a substantial community of uh, the Falasha community, who, uh, many of whom are Christians but many are Jews. Uh, and uh, the descendants, um, in, in their understanding, of, um, the, uh, uh, of Solomon and Sheba. And uh, in the 1980s, in the context of the Marxist revolution, the uh, Israeli uh, state uh, arranged for many uh, of these Ethiopian Falasha Jews to uh, be airlifted to Israel, to begin a new life there. Um, and this story is about, which I, uh, I, don't, I don't know whether it's based on fact, but it's the story of a Christian boy who was kind of smuggled into that process in order to get him out um, of uh, a refugee camp uh, in Ethiopia. Uh, so he gets taken to Israel as if he is a Jew when actually he's a Christian. Uh, and he has to kind of pretend to be a Jew, but a lot of people um, uh, uh, realize there's something fishy going on here. Uh, and one of the people is, uh, unfortunately, the father of the girl that, that he's dating. Um, and this bit is... Uh, uh, They're they having a, a kind of... Um, They're going to have a kind of debate in the synagogue. Um, and he is going to uh, speak in this debate. And I think that what happens by, by way of the interpretation of the Torah uh, in this debate, uh, well, is vaguely to do with the Pentateuch. <laughs> it's in um, Amharic, French, and Hebrew, so you'll be okay. Well, is that the way to expand the Torah, or is that the way to expand the Torah? <laughs> Isn't it beautiful how, how you get the in the beginning was the word, how he smuggles in um, the gospel, the New Testament? <laughs> I don't know whether they noticed, but it was very clever the way he smuggled it in. It's got lots of level. I mean, you can learn lots of. You can learn your Hebrew that way. Now you know that Hebrew for shut up is sheket, um, and Hebrew for please is bavakashah from bikesh. Which I speak to the initiated. You can pick up, uh, you know, things from things you knew about Hebrew. And you, oh yeah, this. Yes, is Cain, which is uh, thus in biblical Hebrew, and uh, gas is delek, which doesn't come in biblical Hebrew. Um. um Yeah, anything, anything about that? Anybody want anything strike, any, strike anybody about that? Mm -hmm. You weren't there, so you can't say anything. I was. Okay. <laughs> I had never thought about the fact that Adam was the color of clay. Hmm. Hmm. Right. It's a very clever uh, piece of argument on the, the kid's part, yeah. Mm. I think I just kind of always pictured him the way that he's pictured in a lot of books. White, presumably. Yeah, <laughs> but as he says, um, uh, the the Hebrew word for uh, red is Adam, Ad, uh, Adam is Adam. Red is Adam. Earth is Adama. Uh, it doesn't you, you, it doesn't take a great deal to to link those together. Though um, people who argue about God being white uh, obviously haven't made those uh, connections. The um, and the the link with the Noah the link with the Noah story um, and. Uh, Africans, black people being um, the descendants of uh, 
Ham and therefore being properly in slavery, that's a, a, an argument that was seriously used to justify um, the uh, subordination uh, of black people in this country and in South Africa. Okay. Um, let me now pick out some of the pick up some of the questions. Sometimes I get lost in the midst of this is number sixteen. Sometimes I get lost in the midst of so many competing views on the Torah after surveying all the different opinions and commentaries. How do we know where to land after considering the options? I find this problem specifically when I'm writing a paper. I'm thinking about the material and coming up my, with my own thoughts, but then I turn to a commentary and that person has said it so much better or had such better insights on the verse or chapter and I can't get past that and back to my own adulterated view or thinking. How should one deal with this? After we've seen all the ideas and views presented, how do I go about forming my own coherent critical view? Not so much in regard to theology, but in regard to what's happening in the text. Well, I think the person who asked that question is kind of halfway to it. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that person is evidently doing is, first of all, um, thinking about the material and coming up with their own thoughts. And that's always where I want people to start. Uh, and uh, reading commentaries and stuff like that is um, to try to make sure that you haven't made stupid mistakes. When you read something, and something you think, oh, of course, that was really... I was reading into it there, wasn't I? Now... Um, so if it does that, then it'll do that because you'll be able to see. But um, if you can't see that the person's produced a good argument for you being, uh, for them being right and you being wrong, then don't assume that you must be wrong just because they've got PhD after their name. Anybody can get a PhD. Just hang around for long enough and you get it. <laughs> um, and uh, so. Have confidence, in, first, in your capacity to read scripture, and then your, in your capacity to evaluate arguments. Um, if, if, if the person's arguments, if the person doesn't produce, you, doesn't produce arguments, then don't believe it just because of what they say. Have confidence in yourself in that connection. Um, use your capacity to think and to evaluate and to criticise and to analyse um, and, uh, and then have confidence in the results of that. Um, and then you'll just have to see what the professor says about the paper. Um, but remember that um, while writing papers seems very important at the moment, in the context of life as a whole, writing papers is extremely unimportant. Um, on the other hand, being able to think things through and be critical and analyse is really important. And in that sense, the exercise of writing papers is a good exercise with regard to life. Um, anybody got any comments or tips that would help that help with that sort of question? Okay. Uh, the next one. Why not, really? Number 17. Why does God at times send prophets such as Balaam and Moses to do something and then wait to kill them on their way to do so? Yet they are saved because of some outside source, e.g. Balaam's donkey, Moses' wife. Um, God doesn't try to kill Balaam, does he? Just kind of... Uh, sorry? 
Oh, well, he's got the sword, you mean? Yeah. Out yeah, but it doesn't have to. I mean, it's not. It's yeah. Uh, maybe that's one of the things that does run through um, the Torah. But I think you get it in the New Testament too. The rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament too is that. Um, God is scary. Uh, God isn't somebody that you can take for granted in a bad sense. You can in a good sense. Uh, when God lays hold of you, then uh, God won't let go of you. But, but God is not your buddy. Um, the relationship between God and us is not an egalitarian one. Uh, God is more like um, a father, a teacher, um, than uh, your best friend. To judge from the way that the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, um, describe it. God is bigger than we are. Um, and, and maybe those stories about people like Balaam and Moses and Paul and Job and various other things, people um, remind us of that and m- make us not not put too high an estimate on people like Balaam or Moses or Paul or Job, which we might otherwise be inclined to do. And not by, by showing that God doesn't put too high an estimate on them. Um, as well as making you feel glad that you're not Moses, Balaam, Job or Paul. Um, because the, the, the cost of being closely involved by that and of being God's servant... Um, is very significant. As I've said before, I expect... I mean, Saul never did a wiser thing than when he hid in the baggage. Try to get out of being God's servant if you possibly can. Uh, And what God is doing with Balaam and Moses is not letting them and not letting us think that they are the ultimate thing, that they are God, that they are indispensable. Um... But doing that in a way that neither of those guys, nor Paul, nor Job, and I've thought of those guys at random, maybe there are disproofs of this, but I'll stick with those, even think if there are disproofs in a minute. But but if you are able to, when you meet Balaam, Job, Moses and Paul in heaven, um, and you ask them, uh, which would be a nice thing about heaven, there'll be lots of time. You know, you can sign up for Moses. It may be several thousand years before you get your chance, but eventually you get it. And, and you get your half hour with Moses and um, Balaam and Paul and so on. And you ask them what they make of all that now. I can't imagine that they're going to be complaining. Um, and overtly... Most overtly in Paul's case, because we've got himself um, speaking about it. But I think by implication in the stories of Balaam and Moses and Job, um, they, they, well, they're close to having a Hollywood ending. Um, they, they don't end bleakly. Um, at least the, Balaam, the Numbers 22-24 of the, the Old Testament story of Balaam doesn't end uh, bleakly, um, nor the story of Job. Uh, Moses' story, we might think, ends toughly, and yet it's, it's the kind of toughness with an encouraging note at the end. He's able to look over the whole land 
um, and uh, even though he can't step in it. And, and, and God looks after his passing and his burying. Um, it's kind of all right. Um, so, in one sense we can't take God and us for granted, especially if we are God's servants. It's likely to mean that we have some tough experiences, but it will also mean um, that God is involved with us, uh, that God's arms stay around these guys, uh, even through the tough experiences, um, and that God will send a donkey or a wife who has got more insight than we have got uh, to enable us to um, get through the tough experiences that God sends to us. Um, several people wanted me to talk some more about war in the Torah. Why does God send his people to war so often? He only did it once. God didn't commission any war. In the, Pen in the, in the Pentateuch, none of the wars that Israel undertook did God commission. Um, the only war that God commissioned, he does the commissioning in the Pentateuch, but not the implementing, that is, the, to go and slaughter the, the Canaanites. Um, and more or less nowhere else, almost nowhere else, I think, in the Old Testament, does God commission any wars. Uh, Israel engages in lots of wars and doesn't get in trouble for it um, in the Torah and elsewhere. Um, and, and I'd say that's a, an indication of, of God's working with the world as it is. Because the world is full of wars. Um, and, and God doesn't just simply say, okay, you guys are not supposed to fight any wars and I'm staying out of here because there's nothing to do with, I'm not having anything to do with that. God, that isn't the stance that God takes. Uh, it's actually only in the last couple of hundred years um, that people have got worked up about war and felt that war ought to be a, it ought to be possible to abolish war and that war was wrong. It's not a Christian view, it's a modern view. Um, it's, that is, it's a view that's held by non-Christians as well as by Christians. And it wasn't held by Christians before about 200 years ago. It's, all, it's part of the fruit of the Enlightenment and, the, and of the modern age. Um, the, the view that, that war by its nature is something that ought to be overcomable. Should be, it should be possible to fight a war that end all war, ends all wars, for instance, as they said about the First World War. Um, before that period, uh, within Scripture itself, throughout within Scripture... Um, scripture ac accepts war um, the same as other things, like taxation. It's just one of those things. Deal with it. Um, and, and God takes that stance too. So uh, there, are, there are wars that you're simply told stories about. They simply happened. Uh, there are wars that Israel decides to fight and God gets involved um, and supports them. Uh, there are wars, um, in, in particularly in the prophets, uh, where the big war makers aren't the Israelites but other people, particularly the superpowers of the day. Um, and God uses the superpowers of the day uh, as means of executing his justice in the world in the way that Paul describes uh, in Romans 13 when Paul talks uh, about the uh, emperor having authority in order to exercise uh, justice in the world. That's uh, the way that Paul talks about the Roman Empire in Romans 13 is in keeping with the way that... Um, Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on talk about the um, 
Assyrians and the Babylonians. God works through these realities of human um, experience. Um, The, the war that God commissions, um, is, uh, which, is, which God only commissions in a couple of verses in Deuteronomy, the only point at which God commissions um, uh, war is in a couple of verses in Deuteronomy with regard to the occupation of the land. Um, well, here's, here's like another one of the, the questions from uh, the postings. There seems to be so much incongruity in terms of God's approach in the Torah to peoples of nations and tribes outside of his own people. In the beginning, his people are living among aliens and encouraged to get along. Of course, in Egypt, they're eventually enslaved and unable to liberate themselves. In the wilderness, they're commanded to treat aliens well. Leviticus says to love the alien. Occasionally, individuals from outside the circle play a critical role in protecting the Israelites, such as with Balaam. And yet whole groups and cities are wiped out by God and the plan is to wipe them out entirely as the, as the Israelites enter the land. I understand that God said it was because of the wickedness of these nations that they were being destroyed. But is this the best way to also achieve the goal of the other nations looking at Israel and seeing them as a wise and good nation because God is with them? Is this the kind of God he wants the other nations to acknowledge? Well, I presume it is to judge from the New Testament, because the New Testament, as I've said, keeps telling you how, how God is going to send trillions of people to hell. Is that a good way to attract um, the nations to want to come to acknowledge this kind of God? Would it be a better way if the New Testament hadn't said that kind of thing, given the impression that God was simply loving and merciful, and that God didn't act in judgment? Would that have been a better way to acknowledge people, to attract people to acknowledge God? Well, I think not, because it would have been, it would have both have given you a wrong impression of God, well, and, and in particular a wrong impression of God's attitude to questions about what's right and wrong. Um, the New Testament does not picture God as being tolerant. The New Testament pictures God as the, the kind of person who says, if you don't forgive other people, you won't be forgiven. Um, the God of the New Testament and of the Old Testament is, uh, has got these two sides to him, uh, that are summed up neatly in the self-description uh, that God gives in Exodus 34 when God talks about being characterised by commitment and mercy and um, faithfulness and so on and then being one, somebody who doesn't acquit uh, the guilty. Um, and uh, the, the, those two sides to God, with the stress on the first, the positive side, uh, are ones that run through the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament and then through the New Testament. We don't like that. We think that God should simply be merciful and loving. That's the way we portray God. And that's the way we portray Jesus too. But Jesus is also capable of being nasty. Jesus is the guy who introduces talk of hell into the Bible. Um, and so uh, we can keep our loving and merciful image of God if we want to. But we need to take seriously um, the way in which Scripture doesn't not, not, no part of scripture gives you that kind of impression um, of God. And it pictures the notion of uh, annihilating the Canaanites as part of that picture. That is, um, the, the reason why the Canaanites are to be annihilated um, is because that's an appropriate judgment on a wicked people. It's not as bad as sending them to hell, so it's milder than Jesus, but it's, real, um, it's a real act of judgment. Uh, of course, um, 
the trouble with discussing this issue is that it's profits more than Torah. Uh, so come back next week, some of you. Um, of course, the, the Israelites didn't actually slaughter the Canaanites. The part of the, the irony of this discussion is that the Israelites didn't slaughter the Canaanites. Um, they, they lived among them. The Canaanites were their neighbours. Or sometimes the Canaanites became their servants. Or sometimes they became the Canaanites' servants. Uh, and I, I, I'm not quite sure how to fit that in with the theology. Whether that shows you once again that God's, God, that God's bark is worse than his bite, um, which quite often is the case uh, in, in the Old Testament. Um, but, uh, but it certainly is the case that, that, there was, that was, while there was some annihilation, um, some killing of particular, the peoples of particular cities, uh, it's on, on a much smaller scale than the impression we sometimes get, uh, and nothing like what Deuteronomy commissions. Though maybe what that, uh, may, maybe the explanation for that is something of this kind. In Deuteronomy, in those early chapters, those chapters about um, general attitudes, uh, when the commission to annihilate the Canaanites comes, well, that is the context in which it comes. Uh, when the Israelites didn't do... Uh, and, 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 of course, it's one example of many within the Torah of talk about executing people when uh, at least it looks as if the Israelites didn't assume that God meant what he said. So they didn't execute murderers and they didn't ex- execute adulterers. They didn't ex- execute idolaters and so on. Um, and the scriptures never criticised them for failing to do that. And what that rather makes me think is, perhaps not surprisingly, the Old Testament guys knew how to understand the Torah. Our problem is that we don't. Our problem is that we're literalistic in the way that we um, read the Torah's um, statements, um, declarations about execution or annihilation. Um, We're also kind of... um, Well, supposing that that you are... um, the inhabitants of a city that the Israelites are going to come and attack. Um, And uh, you're in danger of annihilation. So, you sit there and wait to be annihilated, right? Well, not actually, to to judge from explicitly from other parts of the Old Testament. You run for it. So that when the Israelites did kill people in a city, it's pretty likely that it was much as it was with regard to Judean Israelite cities later on. Most of them had gone. And when the Israelites had disappeared, back they come. And that's why the Canaanites are still living amongst the Israelites. They, did. they weren't stupid. They didn't sit there waiting to be annihilated. Um, and so the Israelites actually, uh, indeed, no doubt, killed people who were there. Um, but anybody with sense had gone. Uh, the, uh, the last... Um, well, two, fur- oh, no, two, two further comments about all that. One is that somebody amongst, the, amongst these comments, I think, said they were rather thrown off balance my, by my pointing out that the New Testament is quite happy with the kind of thing that Joshua did. And I felt really pleased about that. That is, that, I, that, um, uh, that this person had um, realised that they needed to rethink the assumptions they'd made about the unacceptability of the kind of thing that Joshua did in light of the fact that the New Testament thinks it was okay. It again illustrates how we have a narrowed-down version understanding of what we think Christian thinking, New Testament thinking is. 
You can prove anything from the Bible if you choose narrowly enough. Um, and, and so you can take individual sayings of Jesus about loving your enemies uh, or being peacemakers and build huge constructions upon them uh, which then set you up with a, with a problem in relation to uh, the Pentateuch. But that, you're prob- the, but that you're probably wrong in that construction is suggested by the fact that the New Testament evidently didn't infer from what Jesus said the kind of thing that you're inferring. Uh, it was also the case that, of course, that um, the, the way the Torah spells out the implications of loving your neighbour makes it clear uh, that loving your neighbour involves loving your enemy. After all, it's usually your neighbours en- that, that are your enemies. Um, and, and the way that Leviticus spells out the implications of loving your neighbour shows that that's the assumption it makes. It doesn't need to tell you to love your neighbour when your neighbour is your best friend, after all, does it? It's your neighbour who's your enemy who you need to be prepared to love. And that's how Leviticus spells that out. And so it, it leaves that um, standing alongside, or uh, well the Torah leaves that standing alongside statements about um, annihilating the Canaanites. Um, of course, the Canaanites weren't the Israelites' enemies. So they weren't not loving their enemies by annihilating the Canaanites. They were annihilating God's enemies, not their enemies. Uh, Augustine says that um, the uh, Bible tells us to love our enemies, but it doesn't tell us to love God's enemies. We're supposed to hate God's enemies. Now, this, this is a way of thinking that we don't um, utilise because we've been so sold on um, a certain kind of slant on the kind of person, the kind of nice person Jesus must have been. Uh, one other thing, yeah, yeah then, 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 uh, then I'll come to you. The other thing about Jesus on loving your enemies and being peacemakers is there's nothing in when Jesus says that that is peculiar to Jesus about it. Other Jews of his day believed in loving your enemies and in being peacemakers. But they also make it clear in the kind of things that they say. Other rabbis quoted in the um, Mishnah and the Talmud and so on. That they don't see any conflict between being somebody who's committed to uh, uh, peacemaking and where, uh, uh, where you have to be being involved, for instance, in war. Um, it's, an, it's another pointer towards the way in which we build huge constructions on taking little sayings of Jesus could, that could mean almost anything and make them mean things which are in conformity with what uh, we'd like them to mean because for whatever reason it might be we don't want we, 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 don't, we don't want to affirm um, the possibility that anybody might engage in war We're 100% against them in the sense that we have absolutely nothing to do with their way of life. We totally repudiate what they do. We make sure that we aren't influenced by them. But we're 100% for them because we know that they are are amongst the people whom uh, God was concerned to bless in his promise to Abraham and the people for whom Christ died. Uh, And we have to maintain those two attitudes to them, which is also what God does. Um... I'm just looking for the question uh, that somebody... Oh, here it is, yes. It's great when you get told that you're being contradictory, -contradictory. (laughs) self-contradictory. 
you seem to be contradicting what you stated in the suffering servant paper that God knew Israel had to be political but in the end it didn't work and it doesn't work for Christianity. But in the lecture on war you seem to imply the wars were validated because they did bring the intended result and even more so validate war activity in our current world. Ah! I've contradicted myself. Uh, can I, uh, can I um, extricate myself from this? Um, it certainly is the case um, that... That, the, that God's ultimate purpose in the world is not going to be achieved by making war. Um, the reason why God is involved in, 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 in war making uh, is not because God's ultimate purpose is going to be achieved that way, um, but, but because, as I said just now, that is how the world is, and God works via that um, as a way of constraining evil, holding back evil, um, achieving some things. Um, in the New Testament context, Paul assumes that the, uh, the, the beneficent order of the Roman Empire, it, it's, that's something that facilitates the spread of the gospel around the Mediterranean. The Romans were wicked people. It was a wicked empire like any superpower. But God was able to use it to positive ends. Um, that doesn't mean that God achieved his ultimate purpose by means of the Roman Empire, except it paradoxically by accidentally, because, because the Romans combined with the Jewish authorities in bringing about the death of Jesus. But it was the death of Jesus itself that, that was the key to bringing about God's ultimate ends. So, so God works through both... Um, God, God is concerned both about achieving the ultimate end of the world's redemption, the world's reconciliation. But God is also interested in making life as it is, um, as orderly... Uh, as possible in making it not go totally chaotic uh, in seeing that there is a measure of um, judgment and justice exercised uh, in world history and God uses war uh, to that end um, have I extricated myself Um, I'm picking on some of the questions that struck me. Uh, how, where are we doing? Eight nineteen. Oh no. Okay. Right then. Now what we should what we shall do is uh, for ten minutes, um, for five minutes, for five minutes. Uh, share with each other the answers that you formulated to my question about. Oh, I haven't got it on this version. About what did I say? Have you got somebody got, give me the schedule for today? Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> this may take a while. One, two, four. I think it was, wasn't it? That should, that should do it. Yeah. Um, oh the, yeah the preparation homework come to class prepared to share one passage that has come home to you one way in which you now think differently in light of reading the Torah and one way you're going to live differently ok you've got three minutes to share with the one person next to you that and then you've got two minutes to turn around and do the same with the person behind you ok go
Okay, you're done. <laughs> I'd like to hear more about the poor, about the obligations for caring for the poor in the Torah. It seems as if Deuteronomy emphasizes more than the other books. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, I think that is. Um, and, and maybe that reflects um, the results of urbanization and of... Um, the monarchy and of the pressure of the Assyrians and so on that produced, um, that meant that, that the old social structures didn't work very well, uh, didn't work as well. Um, I think it's, the, it's, work, it's worth then noting what the old social structures, what, well, still what Deuteronomy's approach to those questions is. Because I think often uh, the argument in our context uh, over these kind of issues is either it's individual responsibility or the state ought to organise it. Um, and uh, liberals and conservatives may, may disagree uh, about whether it's the individual responsibility or the state, but they're agreed on the shape of the question. Whereas Deuteronomy and the Torah, I don't think, agrees on the state of the question, because it puts the obligation much more in the local community. And that seems to me to be something really significant for us to think about in terms of an approach to poverty. The question is, what is my church going to do about it? And what is my uh, local community, local secular community, going to do about it? That, that's where responsibility lies. I think uh, a lot of Christians getting stirred up about advocacy. Stuff advocacy. Do something about it in the local community instead, is what Deuteronomy says to you. Um, Then I think, uh, I think that for us, probably related to that, the notion of poverty is an extremely um, ill-defined one, or, or there are various sorts of meanings that are attached to poverty, uh, the sort of things that we could mean according to whether we're thinking about poor nations uh, and according to whether we're thinking about the poor within our own nation, uh, and whether we're thinking of people below the breadline or people who don't have as much as other people, or what we're sort of... We're not very good at uh, clarifying that. And I think that relates to somebody else. Somebody else's um, uh, question wants me to talk about social justice. That is, social justice is also an extremely ill-defined, fuzzy notion. Um, it's, so, social justice is a thing like community and being relational and intimacy. They are lovely words. We love them. They make us feel nice. We go to sleep thinking about them. But they don't mean anything. The, the phrase social justice was only invented in the 19th century... Uh, it's said that the Torah's equivalent to the expression social justice is the phrase translated justice and righteousness, mishpat utzedakah. Um, and that, that might be true, but if it is, uh, then the, the notion of mishpat and tzedakah has quite different um, implications, I suspect, from, from whatever it is that we think that social justice means. Mishpat means the capacity to make decisions. Sadarkar uh, means um, a, a concern for doing what's right by the people with whom you're in relationship. Um, and so the, the two together mean making sure that decisions get taken, that you take decisions um, in light of your commitment to do the right thing by the people with whom you're in relationship. Uh, and if that's what social justice means... If that's the Old Testament equivalent of social justice, then that's what social justice means. 
but that's not, a, I think, what social justice means in our context. Uh, that's the, those are the words that when, um, when God decides to, that he needs to tell Abraham about what he's going to do to Sodom, um, he says, well, because a- Abra- I'm making res- Abraham responsible for Mishpat Utsadakar. The phrase doesn't, co- co- the expressions come occasionally uh, in Deuteronomy. I don't think elsewhere in the Torah. They're much more, ca- the, the expression's much more characteristic of the prophets um, than, than of the Torah. But that would still be uh, a way of summarizing ex- uh, concerns of the Torah itself. The last thing I want to say about all that, I think, it is that I have a, a kind of hunch that the Old Testament in general and the Torah in particular, well, the Old Testament in general, is actually more concerned about powerlessness than poverty. Uh, and that, uh, that conversely, it's very easy for us who are the powerful people within the nation or in relation to other nations to want to do something about poverty, but that, that still keeps us as the people who are in a position of power. Uh, one of the key words for, for the poor, there are three, key, three words uh, in the Torah and elsewhere for, that mean poor. Um, there's uh, ani and dal and evyon. Um, evyon means needy, dal means poor. Uh, ani, which is often translated afflicted, I think is the word that means powerless. Uh, uh, the, the people who've got the people who can't control their destiny, the people who are under the domination of other people, um, and I think, well, that word is at least as common, maybe more common than, than, than the others, and I think that puts us on the track of something significant, that what what happened in Israel as a result of urbanisation uh, and whatnot, was that certain elements within the society gained gained control um, of the society and of the destiny of others. Uh, and held on to it, and they became the powerful over against the the, the Anivim. Um, and our uh, we ought to be concerned that the people who are powerless within our nation and in other nations um, come to be powerful rather than being powerless. Uh, uh, and that's a more um, uh, basic thing than trying to make sure that they get more. Uh, to give them more than this or more than that in order that they aren't the poor, and we, stay, we then stay, stay in the, the people who are in the position of power. Uh, Anybody want to say anything about that? Good. I usually get in trouble for saying social justice isn't a biblical notion. You're obviously asleep. Um... <laughs> Would a watered-down exodus still be sufficient? Um, like, if the plagues didn't really happen, but somehow Israel was freed, do you think that d- diminishes the value of it? So you meet some free Israelites, and you, say, and, they, and you tell them, actually, it wasn't the plagues that did it, so you don't feel as free, do you? It doesn't, oh, I enjoy being free, thank you very much, I don't care how I was freed. Um... Whether the plagues, if the plagues didn't really happen, does that diminish the value of it? What it, what, what it, what it would, the significance of the plagues is, is asserting that Yahweh is Lord and that Pharaoh is not Lord. Uh, if the extra story didn't demonstrate uh, that, that Yahweh was Lord, then something very important would have got lost uh, in the 
Song of Moses, it, the Song of Moses comes to a climax with the declaration that Yahweh will reign forever and ever. Um, that's the thing that's been, um, that's had the evidence for it produced by Yahweh's victory over Pharaoh at the Red Sea, but that's the culmination to, to the whole story of that conflict between um, Yahweh and Pharaoh uh, through Exodus uh, 5 to uh, 14. Um, so, the, 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 there are very, what, this, what this points us towards is that there are several sorts of significance that attach to the Exodus. Uh, one of which is indeed freeing the Israelites um, from servitude. And if you're an Israelite, you don't mind how it happened, as long as it happened. Uh, but another is that the freeing took the Israelites from the servitude of Pharaoh to the servitude of Yahweh. And another related to that is that that happened as part of demonstrating that Yahweh really is God. Um, and one way or another, it's very important that what happened did demonstrate that. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of a movie called Exodus? Decoded? Exodus? Decoded. 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 Yes, I think I have. I'm sorry, I've, I mean, although I've heard of it, I don't know anything about it, I'm afraid. It talks about how all the plagues, it was more of a chain reaction. Oh, oh that's a com- Well, that's, you don't need a movie to tell you that. There's a, uh, the commentaries will tell you that. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's, um, that's, that's, that's been a kind of common um, theory that's been around for years. Uh, well, it's not, it's not what Exodus says. And I'm just, as, a, as you know, I'm just a simple Bible-believing Christian feminist. And um, so the Bible says that God made these plagues happen, so I believe that God made these plagues happen. Uh, and uh, turning them into a sequence of uh, one thing leads to another isn't an interpretation of Exodus. It's a way of being able to tell a story that you can believe of which Exodus might have been a kind of exaggeration. But as I don't have any problem with believing what Exodus says, I don't need to do that. How do we reconcile the Pentateuch and its statutes with the New, with the New Testament freedoms? Um, well, I'd say the New Testament has a lot of statutes. I mean, tells, the New Testament tells you lots of things you ought to go and do. The Torah tells you lots of things you ought to go and do. Uh, the Torah tells you you ought to go and do these things on the basis that God freed you. The New Testament tells you that you ought to go and do the things that it talks about on the basis that God uh, freed you. So I don't see any difference between the two. There's a difference between the two if you interpret the Torah as if it was law, as if, if you like, they were simply statutes, as if it was kind of a legal arrangement that was set up uh, between God and Israel. But, but the logic of the laws, uh, as, um, as God declares them, I am, the, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, you shall have no other gods but me, you shall not make graven image, and so on, is exactly the same as the logic uh, of the gospel as Paul expands it, say, in Romans. Uh, I beseech you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, acceptable and holy to God, on the basis of the gospel that I preach to you, 
uh, over the previous 11 chapters of Romans. So I don't see any difference between the structure, the understanding of a relationship between God and us that you get in Old Testament and in, and in, uh, in New Testament. Um, Ed Sanders, who it probably counts as a bad guy, um, uh, talks about the relationship of um, between Israel and God. He's a New Testament scholar. Uh, but in talking about the Jewish understanding of the relationship between Israel and God, the, the understanding of, of Jews in New Testament times, of the Pharisees, say, he uses the phrase covenantal gnomism. Now, gnomism is, is, a, is a word that comes from the word nomos that means law. So you could, could, could say, to make it more paradoxical, covenantal legalism. Covenantal lawism. Um, if you just took the word gnom, uh, the way that Christians have often understood, uh, well, he's talking about if, if Sanders is talking about the New Testament, then um, the, the the way that Christians have understood the uh, religion of the Pharisees, they've understood the Pharisees to be legalists, to be gnomists, to be people who believed in salvation by law. Uh, but when you, as far as one can tell from Jewish sources, the average Pharisee was not like that. Uh, did not believe in salvation by law. The, the, the average Pharisee believed that obedience to God was really important, but it was in the context of there being a covenant relationship between Israel and God. So it was covenantal gnomism. It was an obedience to, 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 to God, to the law, that worked within the context of the covenant that God had established on the basis of God having acted in order to save his people. Um, now, if that's what the Pharisees thought, then they were, they were in keeping with the way the Old Testament itself, particularly the way that Deuteronomy thinks. Um, I would like to hear your thoughts in, connection, in connecting the Pentateuch to covenant theology. And I thought, I can't say anything about that because I don't know what covenant theology is. And then somebody else, at least one other person, wanted to know what I thought of covenant theology. Um, so if anybody can tell me what covenant theology is, I will then tell you my answer to the question. What's covenant theology? Okay, sorry about that. Can't deal with that one then. One issue that I'm still unclear about is why God seemed to put, wor put, worth, uh, put forth a model of retributive justice in the Pentateuch. If you counted, this is number 84. Um, but then radically turned from this during the time of Christ. That is, in Exodus 21-24, the notion of eye for eye, tooth for tooth is put forth, but seemingly abolished by Christ, calling us to turn the other cheek. Why the disparity? Would the latter form of justice not work during the time of the Pentateuch? If so, why not? Did something fundamental about God change, or was it merely a change of cultural context, or both? Well, I'd say that Joseph is a guy who turns the other cheek. Um, and he's not the only guy in the Old Testament who turns the other cheek. So the idea had not been um, uh, not thought of by then. Um, and uh, Conversely, as I've said already, 
uh, Jesus is somebody who believes that um, people who don't forgive other people, who says that people who don't forgive other people won't be forgiven. So Jesus believes in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Um, and so the, these, the, these uh, and, and partly what's going on there is that these are principles that operate in different contexts. Actually, the eye for an eye thing uh, works in several different contexts within the Pentateuch, probably. Uh, one of the things that's significant about it is that it limits retribution. Uh, you remember that, that Lamech wants to, uh, is proud of taking sevenfold retribution. Um, so to say that, um, uh, that retribution has to be equivalent, to use our phrase, that the punishment has to fit the crime, is actually quite a significant thing to say when it's very easy for, for um, if somebody insults you, you punch him. I mean, I know you don't, but you probably know there are some people in the world who do. Um, and so uh, the, the principle that, the, that punishment, retribution, should be commensurate to the wrong that's been done is a very um, important uh, principle that would still underlie our laws today. Now, one of the things, therefore, that one needs to understand there is, as with some, of the thi- some other things I've talked about, um, the, there's a difference between God's ultimate purpose and the way in which you run a decently orderly society. Um, l- law th- th- fulfills the function that it does. Uh, law has the function of, uh, of exercising, of ensuring them some or- there is some order in a society and making things not get out of hand. Um, and a, a, the expectation that, uh, that, that there should be retribution that's in keeping uh, with the wrongdoing and uh, not in excess of it um, is part of that. Um, and it's not unrelated to what is nowadays talked about as restorative justice. The eye for an eye for a tooth for a tooth, as the, when you, if you think about it, that's not um, the idea of that. That's, one, mustn't, one shouldn't understand that literalistically, and Jews never did. Uh, that is, it's, it's a poetic kind of function. Um, it, it, isn't, it doesn't literally mean, okay, the guy has poked my tooth out, so I've got the right to poke his tooth out. It's, it's saying that things must be equivalent and that, and that restoration should be uh, appropriate in light of the wrong that's been done. Um, and so that, that fits with them, what is in, in, in our current context is referred to as restorative justice um, as opposed to merely... It isn't about retributive justice. It is about restoration. So that the, the loss that somebody has imposed on somebody else, um, they are obliged to make up for in some way. Mm-hmm. Well, there are, there is different value. There's different value about different different sorts of wrongs that can be done. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. It's about the value. That the, yeah. Yes. Um, so that the person who's been wronged, the the community's job is to see that when somebody has been deprived of something. Um, the person who has done the wrong should restore to that person the value um, uh, of the thing that they've lost in some way. That's the kind of principle uh, that it's working with. That's right. No, that, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That, that, thank you. That's yeah. That's an interesting example because it's not. It's showing it's not. It's not understanding that literalistically. You mean yes? Thank you. That's good. Yeah. Um, this this one uh, reminds me. Uh, a little bit of the um, number 104 uh, of the, that clip. Could you discuss whether you understand the Torah to be showing humanity to be fundamentally good or fundamentally evil? On the one hand, God created humankind in his image, says the creation is very good. But later the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. I have a hard time reconciling the two. To what extent do we naturally reflect God's goodness? To what extent are our hearts naturally inclined only towards evil? Uh, is this something that changed as a result of sin, or can we still claim that original God-like goodness in which we were created? Um, I've been reading Romans. That's impressive, isn't it? Impressive. I'm re- you're impressed I'm reading Romans, aren't you? <laughs> it's, I've been in, reading the New Testament a bit. There's a lot of good, good stuff in the New Testament, you know? I've read, it's kind of, yeah. I read John's Gospel. That's cool. And I read Revelation. That's amazing. And uh, I've been reading Romans. And uh, Paul in Romans says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold into slavery under sin. I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Um, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. It is not the, I, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is evil, evil lies. When I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Uh, now, there's this argument about what um, is Paul talking about: ordinary human beings, or really spiritual human uh, Christians, or not very spiritual Christians, or what? I think he's thinking he's talking about pretty spiritual Christians, but in a way it doesn't, ma- doesn't, doesn't matter to the point that I want to make, that, that Paul's answer, uh, I suggest that Romans 7 suggests to that question, uh, is um, uh, that, that it's not an either or, but that humanity is this, cre- as human beings, uh, human beings are, um, both, there is both something, if you like, demonic and fleshly about us, uh, but also something that is capable of recognizing what's good and doing um, what's good. The statement in Genesis 6 about everything, uh, every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually, I take it as one that belongs in the context. That's the thing that God saw on the eve of the flood, and that's why God brought that about. It's not a statement about how humanity always is. Uh, because, but, but I imagine that just as you can get an individual human being for whom... All the, all the desire to do good seems to have gone and they only desire to do evil. Um, so the whole generation was a bit like that in Noah's day. But, that is, but, the, but the way that Paul describes us as human beings is as pulled in those two directions. Um, and uh, so there is something about us that is that um, original God-like goodness that in which, with which we were created, uh, to use this, question, this person's question, um, but also an inevitable uh, inclination to sin that's come into us as a result um, of what Adam and Eve did and the way they, they, uh, set, they loosed, let sin loose into the world. 
I think I'll do really when it's... Is there anybody for whom this is their last class? Whoa! Okay, tell us what you're going to do with your lives. Well, that's not bad. That'll do for a lifetime. Right. Well, that's um, very similar, really, isn't it? That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, they'll be with you guys. Uh, let's pray. Gracious God, we pray for these two brothers of ours with these very different um, hopes and vocations, maybe, that you've laid before them. And we pray for them as they finish their time at school and ask for your blessing upon them and then you're leading them in your way. And then once again, we pray for ourselves and give ourselves to you and ask that the word that we've been studying over these five weeks may be, ri- may be written into our hearts and lives. Uh, and we ask for your guidance as we seek not only to live by that ourselves, but also to seek other people, seek to, to help other people to live by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.